Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Straight out of Cobham, the show about Chelsea FC from The Athletic. Today, knees up, Mendy down as VAR and subs help Chelsea pass West Ham. The Champions League returns as the Blues head to Croatia. It was a big weekend for the James family. There's a big new contract for Breuer and plenty more in between. Available for free wherever you get your podcasts and ad-free on The Athletic. This is Straight out of Cobham. Here we are then, Gan, reporting on a Chelsea Derby Day win. What a great way to start the week. Joining me today are Liam Toomey, the Athletics Chelsea expert. Morning, Liam. VAR's great, isn't it? It's never, ever been a, a shambling mess. Love it. Absolutely love it. Uh, Sam Parkins also with us. Sam, how many goals would you have scored if VAR existed in your day? Oh, man. There's still one offside decision at the county ground where I've taken my line beautifully off a deep line centre-half, knew I was onside, and it's like a swivelled, hip-high, left-footed volley, kind of on the turn, didn't even look at the target. I knew I was onside. Flag was up. Devastated. Best goal I'd ever scored by a mile. <laughs> well, you got 100 in the Football League. Might it have been 50 if VAR had existed? Not for me to say. Um, I'm Matt Davis-Adams, by the way. I probably should have said that. We're going to start today talking about a Chelsea win. It came on Saturday against West Ham. It's disgraceful. 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 It's a foul. He checked it on the, on the screen. It's what the screen is for, and um, he took the, the decision that it's foul. For me, it's foul. Well, it was one of the one as bad I think as ever I've had for a for a decision for to be overturned for that. I just find incredible. I'm really disappointed that VAR would even consider sending the referee to the, the monitor. So a come from behind victory and against a local rival too. The Blues getting the better of the Hammers by two goals to one with all the action in the second half on Saturday at Stamford Bridge. Liam witnessed it live and wrote a piece on Chelsea's set-piece vulnerability. Um, my favourite line from it, Liam, wasn't about that though. Uh, it was the shambling controversy machine that is VAR giveth and taketh away. Are we calling this one all now then from the Spurs game in terms of uh, ropey video assistant referee? I don't know. I think if you ask certain Chelsea fans, they've probably got more grievances on the notepad than just those two, the kind of people that want to keep score of these things. I just wish we didn't have VAR at all. Yeah, it was it, it was kind of a dramatic end to a game that didn't really deserve that much drama, I didn't think. It's hard to be too down on a win, but my word, Chelsea were poor for most of the game. Created almost nothing until they went 1-0 down. And then you have to credit at least Tuchel substitutions and, and changing the system. Managed to shift the momentum a bit in Chelsea's favour. Ben Chilwell scores like a... I don't really know how to describe it. I've never seen a goal like that. Um, almost like a, a Dennis Bergkamp type control and finish, but with a not really intentional header. And then they managed to turn it round, got lucky in the end, but 
Chelsea still aren't playing well. As I wrote after the game, the set pieces are still a big problem. And Tuchel looked relieved more than happy at the final whistle, I think. Let's take it back to the start then. Uh, Thomas Tuchel making five changes from the side which lost against Southampton, including a debut for Wesley Fofana and first starts of the season for Kovacic and Pulisic. How did Fofana do, Liam? I think he did pretty well. He was pretty decent on the ball. He made one really nice sliding tackle in the West Ham half to win the ball back high up the pitch that got a roar from Stamford Bridge and everyone really appreciated that. I think there was a lot of intrigue to see him play on the right of that back three after just how long that transfer pursuit was. But I think he's, you know, he, he's showing signs that he can he can slot in straight away and contribute. He's obviously got a lot more to give as he grows in experience and familiarity. He couldn't do much about the set-piece goal Chelsea conceded. He got caught in that mound of bodies at the far post with Mendy and I think Mark Kukurea was there as well and Tilo Kerrer. But Tuchel is confident that Fafana will help a lot in those situations as well because he's got a great leap and he, he, he really is a force in the air, unlike most of Chelsea's players. Overall, I think he was okay. He even had one, I think he had one speculative Antonio Rudiger-esque shot, which was miles, miles wide. So he's fitting in straight away. Because they Antonio Rudiger-esque then. Um, Sam, uh, switch back to a back three here. That, that's got to be the way forward for the rest of the season, hasn't it? From from what we've seen with, with how Chelsea look with three compared to four back there. Yeah, I think so. On the on the last seven days, evidence. And once Fafana gets used to that position, I think it can only be positive for Chelsea down the right-hand side. Rhys James can maybe forget maybe about having to have so much defensive work to, to get through and he can concentrate on going forward and uh, and being Chelsea's prime attacking threat really I suppose and I thought we saw from Fofana um, Liam's described it there that the challenge is athleticism is going to get him out of danger at times and he looked composed on the ball going forward especially when Chelsea were chasing the game I thought obviously there's a, a natural change in dynamic when they're a bit more urgent with the ball, but he was kind of around the 18-yard box and he showed that he had that poise and that guile on the ball, which I think him and Rhys James would be a good combination. So, yeah, I don't see any reason. The left-hand side is going to be very interesting now. I've been really hot on Kukure. I thought he's been you know, excellent since he's come in, but he's just dropped his standing in the last couple of performances. So, brilliant to see Chilwell come back in and pick up where he left off last season, really. Um and I completely agree to an extent with Liam that it was a very peculiar goal. But I think he maybe meant it, Chilwell. I think he maybe meant the header. It's a brilliant run. We didn't see any of that from Chelsea on Saturday. The amount of bodies coming towards the ball, especially in the first half, the, the, the front two and, and Gallagher, picking it up in half spaces, but nobody going in beyond. And I thought it was a great run, purposeful, forthright. Let's try and get in behind and ended up getting a goal. So... Full credit to him because he made a huge impact. So this was after Antonio had bundled him from a corner that Chelsea didn't defend very well, as we've spoken about. It sounds like the subs were key here, Liam. Obviously, Havertz and Chilwell got the goals, but Breuer as well seemed to give Chelsea that focal point that, that they'd been missing up to that point. Yeah, and I think he just brought an intensity and a directness as well. I mean, the first time West Ham even looked panicked was, was when Breuer just sort of chased the lost cause into the penalty area managed to get his foot to a bouncing ball and almost forced a mistake out of Fabianski. 
And that really got the crowd going because up till that point, Chelsea had been so, so bad in possession. It was it was all the worst sort of excesses of the things that fans often complain about with, with Tuchel's system. There was too much slow, safe, sideways passing. It seemed like having been stung the way they had been against Leeds and against Southampton, there were too many players on the pitch that were afraid of being the ones to give the ball away. And so they were just playing the obvious pass, the obvious pass, which was usually out to the wing backs and then back in and over to the other side and back back to the other wing back. Um, at one point, I thought Thiago Silva was going to break Jorginho's pass record for a single game because it, it was just going left and right back to him. And Chelsea just weren't doing anything. I thought in particular the midfield just didn't work with Kovacic, Gallagher and Loftus-Cheek. Loftus-Cheek was actually playing the closest thing to the Jorginho role with with Kovacic and, and Gallagher as eights either side of him. But neither of them, as Sam said, ever looked to get into the penalty area. And Tuchel said afterwards, you know, David Moyes' teams, very difficult to look good against. West Ham sat very deep, very narrow, very compact. But they tried to do that against Man City on the opening day as well, and City just played through them. So that gives a sign of just how far off Chelsea are from the standard that they're aspiring towards. Just a minor point on on the changes, um, having Roya and um, Havertz up there at the end. In the first half, I thought Rhys James was still the outlet all for an hour. He was still the one getting to the byline, but everything has got to be cut back or flashed in at knee high. So I think that makes probably a deep line, defensive line, um, you know, uh, a team that's saturating the 18-yard box, it becomes quite easy to defend. As soon as you've got Broyer and Havertz on there, you've got a physical presence. And also, yes, a lot of the ball was to feet and Sterling showed some nice touches and he's really bright when he gets in the pocket. Havertz can do that if he plays up there. So then you've got Havertz who can drop in and you've got Broyer potentially who could play on the shoulder and, and get on the end of crosses. So... I'm not saying it necessarily has to be those two, but that's um, that's an option. I'd like to see Sterling in the side still because I think even in a real turgid game on Saturday, I mean, I can't remember a Premier League game featuring one of the top sides where there's been so few chances. I mean, other than the Cornet chance they hit the post, I don't think there was a chance. Neither keeper had to make a save. But I thought Sterling, even in that, you know, really low-key London derby still showed some really good feats and good moments so you know there's there's definitely food for thought for the manager the way the game ended with that personnel. Tuchel mentioned in passing afterwards that it was a a tactical decision to start with two small strikers he didn't Mm. explain why I'm presuming that it was to try and deny West Ham's big physical centre-backs an easy focal point to mark which we saw happen a few times last year with Lukaku where he would just be totally fixed and completely easy to to smother out of the game. But while I thought Sterling and Pulisic both did pretty well when they did get the ball, linking play, occasionally they, they turned the corner and, and sort of drove sideways and tried to pick a pass. There was just no next step tactically to, to get to a goal. And that seemed like a, a pretty big oversight. And um, yeah, whatever, whatever Tuchel's thinking on that, it didn't work. And, and at least... He did recognise that it wasn't working and, and changed it in enough time for Chelsea to win the game. Well, that leads us on nicely, Liam, um, To I think the reason that you wanted to be on the pod today is an opportunity for you to praise Kai Havertz for the first time this season. <laughs> um, he needed that, didn't he? Yeah, I said I wouldn't come back on 
I'm not having the celebration. Uh, that's, yeah, it was, <laughs> I was. I was actually going to ask that. Was he? Did, was there anything said about that, Liam? Was he actually shushing his own supporters, or is that just a celebration that players do these days? I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't say I really paid much attention to it in the moment. I don't think he was asked about it afterwards. I'm not even sure if he did post much media. But they they clearly do pay attention to what's being said about them on social media. They clearly do look at the replies. Even though I would, if I was a football agent, I would advise. Any player I was advising not to ever look at the replies, good or bad. Um, I'm sure he's, you know, he's human. He he understands that he's been criticised for not scoring, not assisting um, so far this season. I remember I interviewed him at the end of his first season and, and he talked about his price tag and, and how he felt that conditioned the expectations on him. So he clearly does think in that way. It was just a nice moment for him. I think it was just a big relief for Chelsea in the game they were in a, a really tough spot the chill world goal came out of nowhere for them but that was actually a, a, a nice engineered move Breuer waiting for Chilwell to get on the overlap nice pass precise cutback which is something maybe you, you could say Kukurea hasn't really offered Chelsea yet as a left wing back and a nice front post finish from Havertz which we haven't seen often enough from him at Chelsea but maybe it's a sign of things to come you ever shush the Ipswich fans, Sam? Funny you should say that. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a dangerous game to tarnish a whole fan base with the same brush. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think they've been quite patient uh, with, with Havertz, you know, at the start of this season and last season. You know, there's been some good good performances, and I think we've said as much on this podcast. But yeah, I think that was a bit of a probably reaction to some of the, well, a little bit of stick that he's been getting. But yeah, I do remember at the with Dean, I was a fan of actually singling out an individual. You know, <laughs> I saw a bloke giving me pelters. You, row C, C47. Come down here and say that again. <laughs> yeah. And I scored for Ipswich, so I made a beeline, quite a long beeline, if that makes any sense, onto the running track. Was it at a by all level, this beeline? Or? <laughs> at uh, uh, at the, well, the Whitney, yeah. It's a good, good 50 yards, isn't it? To get over the hoardings onto the racetrack and I um the running track, sorry, and, and, and gave him a little bit. So Did he give yeah. you any back? I don't recall him giving me any back, but I think Joe Royal was on goals on Sunday the following day and um was asked by Chris Kamara. Sorry, I'm I'm digressing <laughs> here, but he was asked by Chris Kamara or something, how Sam getting on or whatever. And he and Joe Royal said Oh, bless him, or something <laughs> along those lines, because I've been that bad. <laughs> the day after I'd scored, oh, yeah, he's trying hard. He got a goal. Imagine yeah. if Thomas Tuchel said, oh, bless him about Kai Havertz. That would be magnificent. I'm <laughs> um, right, we've put it off long enough. We've got to talk about VAR. So after what turned out to be the winner from Havertz, West Ham thought they'd equalise. Maxwell Corday put the ball in, but the referee uh, was advised that he should go and review it because of a challenge by Jared Bowen on Edward Mendy. David Moyes didn't agree. Alan Shearer called it beyond terrible on match of the day. The Premier League to review this and the decision in the Newcastle v Palace game with the PGMOL as a matter of urgency. Uh, the Athletic reporting that West Ham will also seek clarification from the Premier League over VAR official Jared Gillett's decision to rule out the goal. Liam, can you make a case for, for the fact that VAR got this right or, or is it just karma and yeah, it's one all now from the Spurs game, as we said? Well, look, he, Bowen leaves his leg in. The reasons for that, we don't know. There could, it could have even been a case of him leaving his leg in instinctively because that's what players do to try and win a penalty off a goalkeeper. 
another sign of just where we are with football and the gamesmanship and the technology and everything. Um, he does catch Mendy. I've never seen, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen that given as a foul because it's not a kick. He's just sort of dragged his leg over his body and, and according to Tuchel, Mendy was in a lot of pain afterwards. Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see if he plays in the next few games. It, you know, it didn't seem like the kind of contact that would create a, a serious impact injury. My general feeling on it was, in the moment, I think a foul or not a foul probably would have both been justified because it's one of those things that's probably down to the interpretation of the referee in the moment of the game. But once a decision's made, surely the whole point of VAR is that they're only supposed to send the referee to the monitor if there's a, if there's a clear and obvious error or if there's a risk of a clear and obvious error. And I'm not sure it met that threshold. You know, if you've given the goal, was it in was it enough of a foul or a clear enough foul to send him to the monitor and, and persuade him? And we all know in re- the whole monitor thing is we did a piece on the athletic, I can't remember who wrote it, about basically that being all theatre. As soon as the referee gets sent to the monitor, the decision's getting overturned. Statistically, a, a referee very rarely sticks to their guns because the hot they immediately think the reason I'm being sent here is that they want me to change my mind. So t- to me, it's just another example of VAR being an absolute joke. I thought it was a flawed concept from, from the very start. Never thought it would address the the controversy in the sport. If anything, it's just intensified it because now there's this spectre of this all-seeing eye that is somehow biased against your team when it when it goes against you you know the, the agenda has just been transferred to a guy looking at a screen in Stockley Park rather than the referee um, and it's just really really tedious I, I don't think we needed VAR it hasn't delivered the kind of 100% accuracy or anything close to that that people were were, were selling it as and we're, we're still getting moments like this where games are just ha- having game-changing decisions dominate the conversation. Yeah, it's rubbish. Um, football's supposed to be entertainment and watching somebody watch a monitor for a couple of minutes is not that entertaining. Um, Sam, take us into the, to the mind of Jared Bowen here as he's going through. Would it even come into your consciousness in that split second to think, I ought to lift my leg up a little bit higher here, otherwise I might get a foul against me? Surely that that's not something that, that he can do and that he can control. He, he wasn't trying to injure Mendy, was he? My thought process there would probably be to initiate a collision. So he spills the ball. Uh, my instinct as a striker would have been if the ball was there to be won, even if the goalkeeper's getting there, there may be a scramble and it may end up in what happened. So there's probably inevitably going to be a little bit of contact. I, d- I don't know on this one. I mean, the first time I saw it, I had to check that it was the incident that everyone was talking about. It seems that someone's angry and then people tend to get more and more furious. And there's nobody allowed to have a a different opinion on it. I mean, if I was playing, I would have been appalled if that decision had been given against me, of course. And I think it is a bad decision, but I think I've seen a lot worse from VAR. I think that's what I'm trying to articulate. I don't know why this all of a sudden is the benchmark for why VAR should be ripped up. Um, It's one that could have gone either way. If Yeah, if I was playing, I would not have been happy. But I think... Jared Bowen gesticulates that I've not done anything, Governor, which tells you that he knows there's been a collision. Um, 
so so yeah, I think he was he was concerned that he was going to be penalised. So and, and that's ultimately what happened. So I don't see in it but it's been the most disgraceful decision I've ever seen. But of course it was it was soft and I think Liam's point's a great one, the clear and obvious thing. You know, I have not really thought about that, of course. You know, there's no way in a, in a million years that the referee needed to go to the monitor. You know, it's it's not a mistake, is it? All right, I don't want to end the chat on this game on VAR. So instead, Liam, I will ask you, how are you feeling after this result? Are you buoyed by the fact that Chelsea haven't played well, have come from behind to win a game, or are you concerned that we've not seen a, a consistent 90-minute performance yet this season, or at least one that's resulted in a victory? I think you get to the end of another match and you realise that we've seen probably the best version of Chelsea for, what, 65 minutes this season against Tottenham? And that's it. I think they've had sort of 15, 20 minute stretches in other games, but they've been very, very lucky. Now, I, ha- I hate to go back to XG, Matt, um, but I did look at it again after the Southampton game and then after this one. Chelsea have a negative goal difference so far this season. Someone was telling me this morning that Liverpool have won every single one of their matches on XG and kind of suggesting that that's a reason not to be too down on Liverpool's results so far. I think if you're, if you're using the same sort of thinking about Chelsea, you're, you're worried because they're expected to give up at least a goal every game. And this isn't a free-scoring team. Their XG against West Ham was actually even worse than it had been against Leeds. So they're, they're not creating that much either. And I think they they need the signings to come in and freshen things up a little bit not just to add something a bit different to the team, but also I think to to challenge the players that are already there and, and push the standards up. And Tuchel's spoken about that. But Tuchel needs to be thinking quite hard, I think, at this point about things that they can do differently tactically, whether that's changing the system or just change, tweaking players' roles, maybe emphasising slightly different things, You know, moving the ball forward a bit quicker. There were definitely moments again against West Ham where... Chelsea won the ball back and Tuchel was screaming at them to go. And it was often someone like Loftus-Cheek, who I think has looked very, very passive. I don't know why in the last couple of weeks. They'd just get the ball and just check and pass back or sideways and start building again and allow allow the other team to get completely set. When the whole point, well, a key point in Tuchel's style of play is that you create those turnovers and you go to create situations where the other team's scrambling and that's when you get the best opportunities. Chelsea aren't doing that at the moment and then you add the defensive set-piece element. Their attacking set-pieces were terrible against West Ham as well. So many of them hit the first man. They're just not doing anything to a high enough standard right now. But they did win the game uh, and it's not long. (laughs) I feel like we need a quiz (laughs) to raise it. Well, look, maybe we'll get a bit more positive when we talk about the clash in Croatia. Chelsea in Champions League action on Tuesday. We'll preview that next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Hello there, I'm James Richardson. 
I just want to give you a quick heads up on the Totally Football Show's European edition. We're with you every Tuesday lunchtime, as you may know, but it's a particularly big edition this week as James Horncastle, Raphael Honigstein, Julian Laurence and Alvaro Romeo look ahead to match day one of the Champions League group stage, which features Real Madrid heading to paradise, Liverpool going down to Naples, where they always lose, and Juventus going to Paris Saint-Germain for the first time in Champions League history. Crikey, we'll also be rounding up all the continental news from the weekend too, so don't miss it. Search for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. I say the Blues get their 2022-23 Champions League campaign underway in Zagreb on Tuesday as they take on Dinamo Zagreb. Uh, Sam, you making many changes to the lineup for this? We'll wait and see if Mendy's fit, but we've spoken about the impact of the subs in the game against West Ham. Does that mean the likes of Chilwell and Havertz and maybe Breuer, if I ask you that for the fourth week in succession, get a start? <laughs> I think so, yeah. yeah. You don't want to be too risky do you and, and make wholesale changes especially against a side I think have started their domestic season really, really well if I'm if I'm right with that so yeah and it's a, it's a massive game you want to get off to a winning start don't you um, clearly but yeah Chilwell absolutely I would imagine would be in, in a good spot to, to start um, Jorginho's had a bit of a rest um, as well Broya, Havertz, who knows? Yeah, absolutely. I think Broya deserves an opportunity to go in from the off. Um, didn't get maybe as involved at the weekend as he did in his cameo at Southampton, but he's raring to go. And we're going to talk about his new contract shortly, but he should be in a good place knowing that he's going to be here for the season. And I'm sure that he can he can contribute, uh, undoubtedly. Um, so, yeah, I just think, you know, just looking a little bit short of a talisman at the moment. I don't know, you know, and with maybe Conte missing as well, how important he is um, in terms of his leadership, what he brings to the party. And, you know, there's no one really, I know Sterling's had a reasonably good start to the season, but it's still there, isn't it, for an attacking player to stand up and uh, and become the main man. So who knows? I think it will change it again in that department, considering the Pulisic, Sterling, kind of Gallagher, trio didn't really work at the weekend. Mm, Aubameyang still to come in. Remember, he's got that broken jaw though, so I have to see if the uh, the face mask that he's been fitted for uh, will protect him on Tuesday. One would suspect probably not. Uh, Liam, lest we forget, this is the Mateo Kovacic derby. It is. <laughs> I'm not going to Zagreb this time. Simon's going for us because I feel like I've already tasted that city quite recently. The Maximir is not a very nice stadium. That was one of my other takeaways from, from being at in Zagreb, it's, I think an entire stand is closed at the moment. There's a dispute between the club and the city council about who will pay for a new stadium that's been on the cards for the last two or three years. And the general impression I came away with is that Dinamo are at a pretty low ebb right now. There isn't a player that you would look to. that There isn't a young Kovacic or a young Modric coming through. They They usually have one or two young Croatian players that you're really excited about. I think the most recent one was Josko Gvardiol, who of course Chelsea bid for, but um, RB Leipzig snapped him up pretty quickly. The only sort of talented young player I saw out there was another little midfielder called uh, Martin Batterina. I don't know if if we'll see him against Chelsea, but other than that, there's not, there didn't seem to be much to worry about. This could be absolutely tempting fate, but I'm saying all of this purely to say there's, there's no excuses here for Chelsea. They, they should be able to go 
to the Maximir win and win comfortably regardless of what team um, Tuchel puts out. And this should be an opportunity, should be viewed as an opportunity to get some minutes into players' legs and get get individuals, but also the team as a collective into a better rhythm that they can then carry into Fulham next weekend. Yeah, certainly not a star-studded Dinamo team. Maybe this says more about me, but the only people I'd heard of were Kevin Tierfile, Catherine and Joseph Dermich, who both underwhelmed in the Premier League uh, a few years ago. Zagreb have got through three qualifying rounds to get here. They knocked out Macedonian side Shkupi, Ludogorets of Bulgaria and everyone's Conference League favourites from last season, Bodo Glimt. Uh, it's their first Champions League campaign since 2019. As Sam said, they have made a good start, top of their domestic league after eight games. Uh, we will react to the match and hopefully hear from Simon Johnson, who, as Liam mentioned, is at the match on Thursday's pod. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Elsewhere in Chelsea news, and there's plenty of it today, head of international scouting Scott McLaughlin has left the club as exclusively revealed by the Athletics' David Ornstein. In his report, David writes McLaughlin is understood to be taking up an executive level role elsewhere in football. He's thought to be departing Chelsea with the club's best wishes. He remains highly respected by the previous and current ownership. What kind of impact will this have, Liam, on the um, the short and long-term future of, of Chelsea's recruitment? Well, it's another big change. It's another really long-serving executive on the football side departing. And I think it, it creates, beyond Tuchel, a clean slate now for the new ownership to go out and build out the, the team that they want um, to, to really run the football side of the club. Because if we're looking at January and, and future summer windows, I don't think there's any great appetite for... You know, even Todd Bowley, but Bedadeg Bali as well, Clear Lake, to be, you know, heavily involved in the the micro details of of transfer dealings. Um, they've got their own businesses to run, and uh, and they they want to put the right people in place at Chelsea and the right processes in place. So, I, I would expect to see a sporting director in sooner rather than later. They want one by January the, at the latest, but I, I'd imagine they'll try and get one in significantly before then and then that person can have a big say on who the new head of international scouting is and and really start tweaking that network um to their specifications and and changing the processes 
of the way Chelsea identify talent and maybe the data operation. I don't, you know, I don't, it, I don't get the sense it will be a complete overhaul because I think the owners have been impressed by the infrastructure that's already there. But of course, any sporting director that comes in will want to change things to their own, to suit their own ideas and their own way of working. But I expect that to be the first, the first appointment, the first domino to fall, and then there will be a replacement for McLaughlin in, in due course. Now then, Sam, what do you make of this? Apparently, Chelsea bid £50 million for Romeo Lavia on deadline day. Southampton would have made a £38 million profit if they'd said yes to it. Do football clubs ever just do something totally reactionary? Bear in mind he'd scored against Chelsea the night before. It's got to be a bit more long-term thinking behind it than that. As on, the, on the face of it, quite an extraordinary story, this. You took the words out of my mouth. I hope this was someone that was being scouting prior to... The, the game at Southampton, otherwise that does feel a bit reactionary. Uh, someone maybe did a a, a lovely uh, scouting report, maybe from the stand at St Mary's. You never know. That made its way to Thomas Tuchel's desk and they, they went for it. But I would presume there's someone that they've been looking at. Um, I think I'd seen him quite a lot for, for Manchester City. Obviously, Southampton have got... Southampton, are, you know, they put together... Obviously, their squad—they've—they've they've spent a few quid, you know, not in the kind of the top sixes style, but they've still—they've uh, still played some kind of big sums for some of these players that they've bought in the summer. Um, so that was a decent outlay for someone so young with so little experience. But yeah, he—he he looked very good, didn't he? I mean, he went off injured, didn't he, in the second half? So we didn't even see him from the entirety. But yeah, I'm sure someone that they're going to continue to monitor and make him back. But oh, it took me. Hugely by surprise, hugely by surprise, because he's, he's one of these Southampton players that I think everyone that covers Premier League football is just getting to grips with and come from nowhere. Some really good contract news over the weekend. First of all, Liam Armando Breuer signing a six-year deal. It looked as though he was going to leave, didn't it, in the summer? What, what's changed his mind other than presumably a fairly hefty pay rise? Well, I think the situation was always a little bit more nuanced than maybe it appeared from the outside even early in the summer. I think the people advising Breuer, understandably so, were were emphasising, look, you've got some really good Premier League interest here. Some really good Premier League clubs want you. They want to make you key to their plans. And it's tempting to look at the path that people like Mark Gurhey and Tina Livermento, Tarek Lamptey have taken since leaving Chelsea on a permanent basis and, and say, well, that, that's a really good path to go down to, to try and maximise your career but there was there was always the sense that that Breuer wanted to stay at Chelsea um, that he wanted to fight for his place he's a Chelsea fan right yeah I think so and he's been at the club since well I think at least the age of nine it might even be even earlier I think he, he wanted to stay obviously things could have changed a little bit if Chelsea had signed even more attackers um, in the summer window there always has to be a pragmatic eye on all of this um, but he wanted to stay he wanted to play for Chelsea he wanted to be a success and the ownership have made a big investment in him you know you can you can be pretty confident that he's got a very good handsome pay rise as part of this six-year contract because it's not generally in players interests to sign contracts this long so you'd have to kind of incentivize it it's good for Chelsea if Breuer is the player that a lot of people inside the club feel that he can be. Um, and I think the signs early this season are quite promising. 
And it's good news, I think, in some ways for Breuer as well, because it gives him some security, some stability. He can focus now on, on just trying to train as hard as he can, impress Tuchel and get as many minutes as possible this season. Which I think if he if he carries on performing the way he is off the bench and the starting attackers continue to underperform, at least in terms of goals, it won't be long before he gets his chance and then it'll be up to him to take it. Uh, the other big news, Rhys James apparently about to sign a new contract. Simon reporting on this for The Athletic. He says the new deal will make Rhys the highest paid defender in Chelsea's history and should be signed early this week. Two things, Sam. One, obviously this is magnificent news, right? And two, when you're a player posing for your signing the contract picture, how long before that have you actually signed the contract? And is it just a blank piece of paper that gets put in front of you? It's a bit hazy, mate, my memory, to be honest. It can't be the actual document, though, right? You're not signing it there. In front no, of you're not. Sure. No, no. I don't think I did too many of those. Uh, the unveiling generally does happen after you've signed, yeah. Is it a lunch order or something that, that you're just filling out? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, again, going back to Ipswich, that was the only real kind of... That, that was the heights I hit. But, I mean, I just remember David Sheepshanks just had a magnificent office <laughs> with, like, a mahogany table. <laughs> and the day I was signing there, he... Um, he was going to Wimbledon in the afternoon. Of course, he was to centre court, so I had to get rushed. I had to get rushed through. So he came in and did the negotiating very early with the um, with the Swindon side of things, and then uh, disappeared off. Yeah, and so I probably went went out hastily um, to the AstroTurf, which has got Portman Road in the background, to do my signing photo there. So yeah, definitely post contract signing. But um, great news about Reese James because I think he could play for any team in the world right now. I think he's absolutely sensational. And again, like I said, early part of the pod today, I thought he was the only one really who was anywhere near his his level uh, in attacking sense in the first half, still trying to get forward and create stuff. So yeah, he's, he's playing brilliantly. He doesn't strike me as the type of character that would be... I just don't know. It, it strikes me that he's very happy, very content. He wants to be at Chelsea. He probably wants to be here during this transition and start to win trophies again, whether that's in a year's time or three years' time. He doesn't. It doesn't feel to me like he's in a hurry um, at all, and and that's not always the case with the young players. Um, I don't know what it is about him, but I just think even if he has a horrendous moment, he just seems so balanced. Um, doesn't never gets too high, never gets too low. Um, yeah, it just seems incredibly strong mentally. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see that for club and country. So, yeah, brilliant news because I agree with it. All the plaudits, he will be he will be the captain, I think. And, and he should be. Um, with, with, you know, he's a colossal player even now. It's the most important signing in Chelsea summer so far. And it basically leaves one domino still to fall, which is Mason Mount. And there's a bit more urgency on that front because... He's in the final two years, whereas Reese James had a little bit more time. But you you would think all the signs on that front are positive because everything Mount has seen since the new owners have come in would encourage him to do as, as James has done. You know, he's seen he's seen the owners spend big to strengthen the squad. He's seen James get a massive pay rise that reflects his status both at Chelsea and in the wider game. And you know, I, I think that will be on the table for Mount as well. So I think I think the next the next thing for the owners is to to get Mount to follow, and um, I imagine they're very motivated to get that done as soon as possible. 
Uh, well, it was a good weekend for the James family. Lauren made her England debut as a sub in the 2-0 win away to Austria that sealed World Cup qualification. Reese and Lauren become the first brother and sister to play for England senior teams. Uh, Millie Bright, Jess Carter and Bethany England also featured in that game. Remember, the new WSL season starts this coming weekend. We'll preview that on our Thursday pod. Uh, one other transfer line, Ross Barkley has joined Nice after his Chelsea contract was cancelled by mutual consent. Liam, I'm just looking at the at the Nice squad. It's a it's a refuge for the damned. I mean, over the Marcin Bolker, former Chelsea Academy uh, keeper, you've got Mario Lamina, ex Southampton, Aaron Ramsey, Nicola Pepe on loan from Arsenal, Morgan Schneidlin still kicking about. He's there too. Um, it's it's good though, isn't it? I'm not going to say it's nice that he's gone to Nice, but at least he's managed to get a club. You know, it's not like a low-ranking MLS team. It's an opportunity for him to try and rebuild his career out of the spotlight. Yeah, and, and maybe um, this was Jim Ratcliffe's grand plan all along. You know, you make a grand, <laughs> you make a massive bid for Chelsea, but the one you really want uh, is is Ross Barkley on a free transfer. Now, I, I think it's yeah. Hopefully, it's a good thing for him. Um, it feels. Kind of similar to Deli Ali going to Besiktas, um, you know, guy a guy who's younger than than people might think, whose career is just completely stagnated. It's a fresh start, a new culture. It could be the making of him, um, and he's still young enough to to have plenty of plenty to offer a good team. I hope it works out for him um, because I never root against any players. Barkley always seemed like a nice guy when when I dealt with him. I don't really know why it petered out so badly for him at Chelsea but he's got an opportunity now in Liga to still play at a high level and I'm sure in the long term his uh, his aims will be to try and get back into the England reckoning even if that looks quite ambitious at the moment uh, Sam to paraphrase Mrs Merton what do you think first attracted Ross Barkley to a move to the French Riviera <laughs> yeah take out like Barcelona Real Madrid and all the obvious ones that's up there for me you know that's in my, my top 10 my dad doesn't live too far away from there either, so I'm sure he would have enjoyed it. He didn't make it to Luton Town too often. You won't find it hard to believe from the Cote d'Azur. So, um, yeah, Nice would have been an absolute dream for me. He'll enjoy living down there. Um, Joey Barton enjoyed it, didn't he, when he went to Marseille? He was completely reinvigorated um, as a character as well, as a player, uh, when he went down there. So I'm sure, yeah, it'll be a good platform for him. A little bit out of the... The, the spotlight as well. We've spoken about, you know, a few times, maybe Callum Hudson-Odoi, you know, different stages of the career and different scenarios. But, you know, that's, uh, you're out of the, the glare, I suppose, of the, the British media. So he's a talented boy. We saw that when he played snippets last season, even had a couple of, you know, decent um, little cameos, got himself a goal. So it's still in there. He just um, he needs to focus on his football and I'm, I'm sure we'll be reading some good stuff about him. I'm convinced of that. Uh, speaking of Hudson-Odoi, by the way, he got an assist for Leverkusen at the weekend on his debut against Freiburg. Uh, in terms of the Chelsea Academy sides, the under-18s lost 3-0 at Southampton in the under-18 Premier League Cup on Saturday. Better news for the Dev squad, though. They earned a 2-0 away win at previously unbeaten Everton, thanks to goals from Cesare Cassaday, who scored on his PL2 debut, and Mason Burstow, who got his first goal for the Dev squad. Some really good performances in that match, too. So, reason. Uh, for optimism there perhaps right before we go Liam what would you like to plug please yes I'm working on a sort of broader Premier League piece on 
where the XG table actually stands at the moment and what different clubs can read into that. I know I, know I alluded to it earlier with Liverpool and Chelsea, but that, that should be up later this week. I'm working with um, Mark Carey, one of our brilliant data people on that. And I'm also trying to do a piece on whether Chelsea are actually awful to watch, <laughs> as a lot of fans seem to be grumbling at the moment, and, and whether you know the, some of the main criticisms, slow, safe, sideways passing, whether that actually shows up in the numbers and, and whether that's gotten worse over time, and maybe how, can, how Tuchel can address it. Sam, what are you up to this week? Not much EFL action, but there's a, a Forest Green Rovers versus Accrington Stanley game that looks like it's got your name written all over it. <laughs> I haven't got that one, unfortunately. I am, I'm on the UEFA League game tomorrow. Dynamo Zagreb against Chelsea. Ah, the under nineteen. So you'll be able to see that, um, yeah, on the Fida website or whatever, on the fifth stand, I think, tomorrow. So, yeah, looking forward to, to that one. That'll be... Good experience for the young players. Always, always say. I mean, this competition came in twenty years too late. I think that's fantastic. You know, for for them as as footballers and and characters, footballers mainly to experience different types of football, different um, parts of the the world as well. That's uh, invaluable for players that are going to go on and um, and hopefully be Champions League players and play for their country. Yeah, Chelsea won that competition a couple of times. Certainly did the likes of Fikayo Tomori and Tammy Abraham. No harm in taking part in it. Remember, if you're not currently a subscriber, you can sign up to The Athletic for just a pound a month for your first six months. Just head to theathletic.com slash Chelsea pod for all the details. We'll be back on Thursday looking ahead to the start of the WSL season and another London derby whilst we reflect on the game in Zagreb. Do join us for that if you can. Until then, thanks to Liam, to Sam and to producer Lucy. We'll catch up with you later in the week. Bye for now. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.